Thanks, Bill. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you will turn with me in God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I wanted to start off this morning by uh, just talking a little bit about the the mixed emotions that we have during this time. I know for me and my family, um, this week, if we has, as we have celebrated uh, Holy Week in, uh, in different ways, um, that there's been a, a great joy. We, we had a wonderful breakfast together as we broke fast and we uh, discussed some of the questions that uh, Damon sent out to us. and It just, just was a wonderful time. There was a lot of joy in that, but I also know that as we do that, that there's also um, some loss in today. Normally, today, we would be leaving here after the service and going and spending time with family, uh, spending the whole afternoon and the whole day, and, and that tradition is, is broken uh, because of social distancing. In, in many ways, my heart is full, as I have, uh, particularly this weekend, uh, really just thought and considered uh, the message of the resurrection and that Christ has risen from the dead and how glorious uh, that is and what a celebration that is and what a time of celebration that should be for us. But in the same turn, there's a, there's a longing. There's a longing for this building to be filled with the church and that we're all singing together. I, as we were singing in Christ alone, I just miss the music dropping out and the congregation singing us, lifting up our voices together. And in real terms, this mixture of emotion is a picture of the reality that we face every day. Till we all get to heaven, as we'll sing at the end of the service, uh, until we get there together, the reality that we face is that this world is full of troubles, heartbreak, sorrow. But yet, but yet, those who are in Christ also experience joy. We celebrate. We have hope. And that we have a job to do. As we look at the resurrection this morning, this, the resurrection story means everything. And it's not a story. It's not a metaphor. It's not some kind of um, thing that has been made up to provide comfort. It is the truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the truth. He has done it. God has done it. God has made a way. Christ is risen. And you and I can share eternity in fellowship starting now with the Father forever. What a glorious glorious truth. And I pray this morning that this fills your heart with joy and that this morning as we open up God's Word and we consider the resurrection together that it fills you with joy. And I pray that God works as we gather. I know we're not all gathered here, but this building, as it has been said on several occasions this morning, this building is not the church. The church is still gathering. We're just gathering in a unique way. And I pray that as we gather that you will know that God is working in and among us. And I hope as God works in and among us that He does great things. I, I am expectant that He is doing great things during these days and these times. And so and I pray that God will use His Word to uh, forward His kingdom this morning. 
Now, several times this morning, uh, Luke 24 has been referenced. If you watched the uh, sunrise message, um, you heard Luke 24. John read out of Luke 24 when the disciples and when uh, Mary and the, the women came to the tomb and they saw that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. And I'm not going to reread that portion, but I do want you to hear um, later as Jesus appeared uh, again to his followers in, verse, in Luke 24, verse 36 through 43. Listen with me, and I'm going to emphasize a couple of things before we jump into our text this morning. While they were telling these things, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. So, so notice that. Notice what their assumption was. Their assumption was is that they were seeing a spirit when Jesus was standing there speaking to them. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands. So Jesus says, Look at my hands. Look at my feet. That it is I, myself. Not only did he tell them to see, but he says this, Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said these things, he showed them his hands, his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. It's clear to me, clear to me when we read Luke's account of the resurrection and Christ appearing to these folks that Jesus, one of the things that Jesus was emphasizing is he was saying, see me, I'm here, see the wounds, see my hands, see my feet, touch me. And then if you ever wondered why, he said, give me something to eat. They watched him sit and eat. Brothers and sisters, it is vital that we see this morning that what Jesus was pointing to and what we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus actually, bodily, physically rose from the grave. That this just wasn't some sort of odd uh, soul, spirit, ghostly thing that happened or the disciples... Um, uh, seeing some kind of vision, but Jesus actually physically rose from the grave. And this morning, we're going to look at this account in 1 Corinthians. Years later, uh, Paul is writing the church at Corinth, and, and as you know, if you've read the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is that the church is messy. And, and Paul had, had uh, preached the gospel to the church uh, to, in this city. Churches had sprung up, and Paul is writing them a letter and one of the things that had happened here at the church of Corinth is that philosophy and culture had invaded their theology and had perverted some of the beliefs that they had. And they had come to believe this odd uh, message about resurrection, that, that, that physical bodies couldn't be resurrected from the dead. And so Paul, as he is writing this letter, finds it very important to write a whole chapter 58 verses about the resurrection. And so we are going to look at this chapter this morning. I figure since you're in the comfort of your own homes, we have several hours. That's not true. 
I don't want your casseroles to burn. So I, this is not going to be an exhaustive study of 1 Corinthians 15, but we are going to jump in and look. And I want you to see some wonderful, wonderful things about Paul arguing the necessity of the physical resurrection of Christ. And here, if you hang with this, and as you look in here, here you will find great hope, great comfort, great assurance, and great motivation. Because, and this is something that we're going to see in a moment, when Paul talks about resurrection, one of the things that is linked together is our resurrection and Christ's resurrection. And you're going to see as this unfolds where where our hope and how this causes great hope and great joy for us. And so let's dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's look at verses 1 and 2 quickly. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. So as Paul is turning here and he's getting ready to talk about the resurrection, he lays out, remember, I came and preached the gospel to you and you accepted it and you were going to be saved if you hold fast to the word which was preached to you. If not, then you have believed in vain. You haven't really believed the gospel message. And Paul is going to jump into this and he's going to lay out and we're going to read verses 3 through 8. But what I want you to notice is notice where the emphasis is as Paul uh, relays and lays out the gospel message, the good news. Read along with me and notice where the most time is spent. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, Cephas, then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So notice as Paul is laying this out, and Paul is saying, remember the gospel that I preached to you. And as Paul lays out the gospel, gospel, he emphasizes here the physical resurrection, and he does so by saying that he appeared to all of these people, some who are still alive, some who are still testifying to what they literally saw with their own eyes. And this is great news. And so we're going to look at, we're going to now transition and look at this um, uh, as Paul talks about the resurrection and the importance of the physical resurrection, resurrection. And there's, three um, main sections to this. In the first section, where we will probably spend most of our time, uh, Paul argues uh, from the negative. If, if there is no resurrection, then, and he's going to give the implications. The next section, uh, which we'll spend a, a little bit of time, since Christ is raised, then, so, so from the positive, and then the last, where we will spend the least amount of time, is he gives details about the resurrection and resurrection bodies. So let's jump in uh, to the first section and let's look at verse 12. And we'll see our first point as we look at verse 12 and 13. Now, if, it, if Christ is preached 
that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now, what is interesting here is that Paul is saying, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead. And what I want you to know is that this message that Christ has been raised from the dead, this isn't Paul's message. It becomes his message as he becomes a proclaimer of the gospel. But this gospel, this good news that Christ has been physically raised from the dead, this is Christ's gospel. These are Christ's words over and over and over as Christ walked on the earth And as we have His words recorded, He tells His disciples, one day I will rise again. I will be put to death and rise again. So as they're Christ's words, they're God's words. This is God's gospel. As you notice, if we look back at the verses that we read earlier, uh, we're starting in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. What are the next words? According to the Scriptures. Verse 4, that He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. These are God's Word. This is God's plan. And look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So if there is no resurrection from the dead, it means that God's Word is false, and Christ's words are false. I want you to see the argument here. Because there's something deeper going on that's important that that Paul uh, unpacks in many places throughout the Scriptures. And the argument here is this. Paul is emphasizing that Christ literally, bodily rose from the dead. Because he's saying in verse 13, if there is no such thing as a physical bodily resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. And everything becomes null and void. And so what he is emphasizing here, the key, is that Jesus was fully human. He was born to a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He took on flesh as a human. He was fully human, lived a sinless life, died, was buried, and resurrected. And all of that was in his physical human body. Now we know that Jesus was also fully divine, but I think what Paul is emphasizing here in the text is that Jesus physically, humanly went through all of this. And this is so important for us. Because Christ came and took on the form of a human, was a man, this is vital because as He did this, Christ became the perfect sacrifice. He lived and died He became like us, but He was sinless and He was obedient to death, even to death on the cross. And as He did this, He took on our sin so that when He was on the cross, He could utter, it is finished. I have accomplished my work. Now this whole idea of of Christ being fully man, uh, being our substitute, um, taking on our sin, um, being punished, becoming a sacrifice for us, is very controversial in our day and age. It's not the same controversies that, that were going on in Corinth, but it was very, it's very controversial today. In some Christian circles, 
you get the idea. People are saying that this idea that Christ became man to take on our sin, to become our substitute, is, def- is divine child abuse. You will hear a lot of people saying that in our day and age. And, and I don't know where they get this or how they understand this to be because as we read the Scriptures, we see that Jesus willfully and gladly for the joy set before Him endured the cross. We also see this message in in some Christian circles that we're we're really not that bad. Why did God have to send a son and why did someone have to die? We're, We're really not that bad. We're pretty good as a human race. So they look at this idea of sacrifice and they're like, really? Why don't Christians just follow the good moral teachings? Why do these crazy Bible-believing evangelicals um, demand that we are sinners and that that sin must be punished? Another one that we're all familiar with that has been around for a really long time is that Did Jesus really have to come and die? I mean, you know, Jesus isn't the only way. There are other ways to be reconciled to God. Aren't there other options? Brothers and sisters, this is not new. That philosophy and our world and our culture perverts these things or questions these things. In fact, in the first chapter of this book uh, written to the church at Corinth, Uh, Just listen to me as I read verse 18 through 21. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So what happens, and one of the things that I'm wanting you to see, is that as we look at this, and as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he is telling them, you have a choice today. Are you going to sit under God's Word and let God's Word stand above you and let God's Word dictate to you what is truth, what is right, what is reality? Or are you, church at Corinth, or are you, modern debater, modern philosopher, modern denier of the resurrection, are you going to stand above God and judge God for what He has done? Are you the sovereign of the universe? Are you the one from which all the essence of what it means to be wise is defined? God is wisdom. Wisdom doesn't just come from Him. He is wisdom. He is justice. He is mercy. He is truth. How foolish that we would sit and question God. And if you remember back in the very beginning... When Adam fell in the garden, do you remember what the temptation was as Eve fell? The first temptation was, as Satan said to the woman, did God really say? 
Apostle Paul, as he is writing this letter to the church, and as we are hearing these words, one of the things that we have to deal with is that God's word stands. And here we will find hope, freedom, and restoration because God has said. that Jesus came in the flesh, he died for our sins, and he has been raised from the dead. And if we trust in him, we will be raised with him. Now, the second thing I want you to see, and you may say, Lewis, you're on point two. You've got a lot of verses to go. We'll get there. We're good. The second thing I want you to see in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. One of the things you need to know is that this church in Corinth knew Paul. They knew what he was going through. They knew about his beatings. They knew about his imprisonments. They knew about his toil for the gospel. And so what Paul is saying to them is, you know me, and if the resurrection is not true, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, then everything I have done is for nothing. And not only that, but your faith. Your faith is for nothing. And when he says faith here, he's talking about their whole belief system. That if Christ has not been raised from the dead, it crumbles. It falls apart. Again, if you look at the beginning of this letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2, 1 through 5, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching we're not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And he is saying, if there is no resurrection, and we see in those verses, if there is no resurrection, it all falls apart. Not only that, not only that, but in verse 15, moreover, moreover, not only is is, is a preaching in vain, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified, notice this, we testified against God. We testified against God. If there is no resurrection, if Christ is not bodily resurrected, Paul is saying, then our testimony, the gospel which we preach, is not only in vain, but it is against God. That He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Fourthly, and the main part of this section, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sin. If there is no resurrection, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, there is no good news. Throw out the Bible and throw out all the apostles' teaching. Why? Because if the resurrection is not true, then you and I are still in our sins. We are still under the curse of sin. And you may say, Lewis, what do you mean throw out the whole Scripture? Aren't there good uh, moralistic teachings in the Bible? And what Paul is saying and what I'm declaring to you right now is if the resurrection is not true, you throw it all away because all of Scripture points to Christ and instructs us how to live in light of the resurrection from the dead. 
Think about it. Think about it. In the book of Genesis, when Adam fell into sin, uh, God tells us, tells Adam that a curse was unleashed. And as the curse was unleashed, we see in in chapter 3 that God says from the very beginning that this serpent will strike your heel, but there will be one that will crush its head. Points to Christ from the very beginning. In 1 Peter, as we've been going through in our, in our normal study, we see that Christ was known, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was the plan. The whole scriptures point to Him. And we, as we look at the Old Testament, we learn over and over again through many ways that God will make a way. And we see many shadows of the reality to come. In my personal uh, Bible reading plan, uh, reading through the Bible in a year. I've been in the book of Leviticus, and we talked about this several weeks ago, but I want to just briefly bring it back up again. In Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, once a year the priest would go in, and he would go in with two goats and make a sacrifice for the people to atone for their sins. One goat would be slaughtered and killed and sacrificed. The other goat, the priest would put his hands on the goat, and it would go away outside the camp into the wilderness signifying taking away the sins of the world. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, brings this picture together and brings Christ together and says, Christ is the one who not only was sacrificed for for our sins, but took them away, took them outside the camp. In, In the beginning of the Gospels, when we have John, the forerunner to Christ, when he sees Jesus, what does he say? The Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. And then if we fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation, when John is there and when he's seeing this vision of of last days and things to come, and if you remember when there's the scrolls that need to be opened up and no one is worthy to open the scrolls, do you remember who it is that comes and takes the scrolls? The slaughtered Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And then Revelation points us to a day when Jesus will again bodily return and gather His bride. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. And you might as well throw out the gospel, throw out the Bible. But praise be to God that there is a resurrection. Praise be to God that we do not have to face the huge problem of paying for our own sins. Praise be to God that the weight of our sins and the just judgment of our sins are not put on us if we trust in Christ, but Christ has taken them from us. Lastly, in this section, look at verses 18 and 19. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, So those who have died are gone. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of of all men most to be pitied. So what he is saying is that there is no reason to live a Christian life if there is no resurrection from the dead, because when you die, it's over. So why in the world would you spend your life living a Christian life if this world is all there is. There's no reason for that. And, as he says, we are the most to be pitied. The Christian life is a call, is a joyful call, 
to self-denial, at times to persecution, at times to suffering, to joy, to giving. Because of the resurrection, we as Christians are to live, we're to love, and we're to give, and we're to do these things aggressively because we know that this world is not the end. This is not our home. In the book of Philippians, famously, famously, Paul writes, Paul writes, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Because of the resurrection, our dying is not in vain. And so our living is not in vain. The next section, and we're going to move through this uh, quickly. We have, uh, but now, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who, is, who are asleep. That Christ has been raised from the dead and He is the first fruits of all who are asleep. This idea of first fruits, if you um, are familiar with the Old Testament in particular, when it talked about sacrifices, that they were to bring the first fruit of the harvest. The first fruit as a representative of the whole, of a sacrifice, of, of all I have is yours. I'm bringing you the first fruit and trusting you with the rest. Jesus is called the first fruit of all those who are asleep, of all those Christians who have died, because as He comes, lives, dies, raises from the dead, He is the first fruits, and we who follow Him and trust in Him will be with Him. He is the first fruit. Then as this goes on, notice verse 21 and 22, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. As we talked about earlier, when Adam sinned, sin, as Eve sinned and gave the fruit to Adam and Adam sinned, as they sinned together, the curse of sin was unleashed on the world. That sin tainted and ruined everything. That we as human beings, by nature and by choice, by the actions that we do, are hopeless and helpless because of sin. It's affected everything. It's affected everything. It's affected our thought process. It's affected the way that we live in First and foremost, it has separated us from God, that we experience death. Because of sin, we physically die and we have spiritually died. But thanks be to God. That was the first Adam. And what the text says, what Paul is saying, by that first man came death, so also from the resurrection of the dead, Jesus came and was risen from the dead, becomes life. But God being rich in mercy, made us alive. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you will be 
saved. And what we see in these verses, if we were to spend more time here, is we, what Paul is drawing us into is the whole idea that we were created in the image of God. And we were created in His likeness. But because of sin, we have all fallen and things are damaged and things aren't what they're supposed to be. And the world is spiraling off into this horrific trajectory, but God restored, made a way for those relationships to be restored. And as we see this, as we see this reconciliation, one of the things that I want you to know is that you can be reconciled to God now. While you are in these earthly, decaying, sinful bodies, you can be reconciled to God and you can experience Him in His joy, in His peace, in His comfort, knowing Him as your sovereign Lord and Savior. He gives you His Spirit. He has communion and fellowship with you. That, so we experience this restoration. We can experience it now. But, but as Paul is clear in this passage, and especially in the next section, that restoration is not yet what it will be. But one day, one day, Christ will come again and all things will be made right and we will spend eternity with God, our Father, completely restored and reconciled to Him, physically and spiritually. So this leads to the, the last section that Paul uh, addresses to the church at Corinth and, and what he goes into some detail here is how that this sinful body can be fit for heaven. And we're not going to spend uh, time there. He lays out verse 35 through 54 that if God the Creator can create in us uh, these mortal bodies, uh, He can create as we perish, as we die. He can raise us up with new resurrected, physical resurrected body. In fact, He uses the imagery of an old seed that dies and gives birth uh, to something new, something that is fit for heaven. And brothers and sisters, especially during a time like this, don't you long for a body that is free from sin, free from death, free from decay, free from sickness, free from separation forever. Notice the conclusion of this passage. It's glorious and it's great and Bill... Uh, read part of it. I want to read again verses 54 through 58. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death no longer has any grips on us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, because of all this, notice what Paul does here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. I want you to look back at one other verse. Having this verse, verse 58, in your, in your mind. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Look back at verse 32. 
if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? For if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. What Paul is telling us here is that the fact of the resurrection affects the way that we live. It gives us our hope, it gives us our security, and it gives us this platform from which we work. And my challenge and my question to you, if you are a believer this morning, is I want to ask you, which one of these does your life look more like? Does your life look more like the eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we'll die? This world is all that there is, so live it up. Or does your life, is your life filled, filled with fighting, Toiling, rejoicing, working for the gospel message to go forward because it's the most important thing we have. I'm stealing, um, as I was talking to some friends on uh, Wednesday morning, we we're having virtual Bible studies, two pastor friends of mine, and we were talking about what we were preaching. Uh, one of my friends is spending his whole sermon on this, but I'm just taking... I'm stealing a part from him. He didn't tell me his whole sermon, and, uh, but I'm stealing a little bit of it. And it's this whole idea, as we've been dealing with the coronavirus, of, of COVID-19, think about the extreme measures that many of you, that we, me, I, have gone to to try to keep myself and others safe. Have you thought about Why? And you may say, yeah, Lewis, I've thought about why. Because that thing's dangerous. There are people that are dying because of this illness. And that is right. And so our country, our world, in many ways, has been shut down. It has affected the way that we live. Here's what I want you to think about. Sin is way more deadly than the coronavirus. Sin not only means that you die, it means that you are eternally separated from the Father. And that there are people all around us that are dying of something way worse, with something way worse than the coronavirus. They are dying still in their sins. With the aggression of which we as Christians, have wanted to be good neighbors and we are fighting, we are isolating. Many Christians are going to the front lines and serving and trying to help with this coronavirus. Brothers and sisters, can we take this time and think deeply about this and can we be convicted as believers that our neighbors are perishing of something way worse? And can you remember that you were saved for a purpose and that you were saved and placed where you are for a plan and that we are to be, as we live on, as Paul said, the reason we live on, it's fruitful for those around us, that we are promoting and proclaiming the gospel. Now, that's the challenge to those of you who are believers, but this morning uh, I also want to do... Um, 
I want to reach out to those who may be watching. Uh, and there's two groups who may be watching who are unbelievers. And so one is, if you're watching this morning and you've never placed your hope in Christ, and my prayer has been, as I've been praying um, all morning, really all weekend, is that there may be some who are watching this that who uh, don't know Christ as their Savior, and that God may use this time to convict you of your sin. And that you maybe for the first time realize that you were a sinner and that if you were to die, that you, were, you would die in your sins. And this life, this resurrected life that we're proclaiming that we now live, you don't have it. I, I would just pray that you email me. My email address is lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at smbible.com. Email me. I would love to converse with you. I would love to pray with you. The other group, and uh, this is something that I think I pray that God might be doing as well. This is just stirred in my spirit um, all week as I've been preparing for this, is that as a family, if you are watching as a family this morning, or maybe you're watching with a, a, a roommate or, uh, or others or around with you this morning, I pray at the end, after we get done singing, I pray that you will just take some time and you will ask the question, uh, someone um, ask the question, kids, what's the gospel? Kids, roommate, have you ever trusted Christ? Where are you with the Lord? I pray that you would do that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the resurrection means everything. We are not in our sins. There is hope. The life we live, we do not have to live in vain. This life has a purpose. And the purpose is to spend this life living and loving and giving aggressively so that this gospel would be proclaimed. God, I pray that right now, this morning, that your spirit may take these words and that you may cause some to be born again because of the proclamation of your word. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you for raising your son from the grave. And it's only in his name that we can pray. Amen.